0: Hello, Stomping Jen. Hi. Welcome to the Soft Serve Podcast.
1: Oh, thanks for having me. Oh, I so enjoy being here Thanks for with being you. here. Every week.
0: And I, of course, am Sawtooth Frank, mm-hmm. and I'm really excited for this episode. We have a guest on this week, an anthropologist, to talk to us about a program going on here in our home state of Massachusetts. Called the I Shape Program. Mm-hmm. And it's really about bringing awareness to um, indigenous peoples and indigenous cultures. And I'm really excited to have this conversation. Are right. you ready? I'm ready. Are let's, you excited? Let's do it. All right. So, and that anthropologist's name is Virginia McLaurin. And we're going to talk to her right on the other side of our intro music. Great. Okay. Yes. All right. All right. Here we go. Whoops. Um. the soft serve podcast creamy delicious ideas without the creepy truck all right, Stomping Jen. Yes. You may have heard that again. I changed all of my buttons around. I think
1: around. you need to reorder your buttons.
0: Laura, right, I need to have a practice session. Just sit here all day, one Until day, it
1: becomes like rote.
0: Blindfold myself and oh, just right. hit buttons till I get it right.
1: I have a story about a button, about a soundboard. You do? Yeah, but I want to talk to Virginia first.
0: Okay, well, let's say hi to Virginia. <laughs> um, Virginia, thank you, Virginia McLaurin, an anthropologist, um, who is, well, why don't you tell us about your work in anthropology and who you are and just tell us a little bit more about yourself.
2: Well, hi, thank you for having me on the show today. Um, as you said, I'm an anthropologist finishing a PhD at UMass Amherst and my work really focuses on indigenous people and how they're portrayed in the media, um, by media that they create themselves and kind of more mainstream media that indigenous people mostly don't have a hand in creating. Um, And so I've become involved with this project, I shape Massachusetts that I'm very excited about. Um, And it really relates to raising awareness about indigenous communities in the Northeast and in Massachusetts in particular.
0: Thanks. And can you tell us a little bit more about what the I shape project is? Like what kind of, what spaces does it occupy? What are its, are its objectives, and how did you as an anthropologist get involved with it?
2: Absolutely. So I Shape Massachusetts actually stands for Indigenous Scavenger Hunt for Activism, Preservation, and Education in Massachusetts. And I kind of heard about this group um, putting it on, the Belchertown Justice Collaborative. It's a group of young people who have gotten involved in a lot of social justice issues in Belchertown, um, including things like police violence, um, implicit bias, cultural appropriation. Um, So they're dealing with a lot of different communities and trying to really bring people together and raise awareness around a lot of issues. Um, So they wanted to do this project in the fall where they focus mostly on indigenous issues for kind of the six week run. And keeping in mind that COVID still has us all pretty housebound. Um, They wanted to do something that was accessible virtually, that people both inside the Belchertown community and outside of it could potentially make use of, um, that would address a huge range of ages for people to get involved. Um, So I heard about it kind of through word of mouth from some other people um, who kind of passed along emails and said, hey, do you know this group? Um, I myself used to live in Belchertown for two years, Mm -hmm. and when I was there, this group wasn't a thing yet. But I was super happy to hear that this was going on in my former hometown. Um, so I just kind of started sending emails and said, I'd love to be involved. I'd love to help put this together. Um, we drew in some other indigenous people from the area. And then we just kind of started building this huge kind of database of resources for a different um, age ranges.
0: Now, I wanted to ask this. Um, you have a uh, you're. Doing um, anthropology work um, involving indigenous people, you're involved in the I Shape program. Um, Do you have um, indigenous ancestry? Do you have a, a personal involvement in these topics and areas?
2: Yes, yes I do. So I'm originally from Georgia and my family is from the lower Appalachian area. And so I'm of Eastern Cherokee and Scottish descent. Um, And there was a lot of intermarriage there between kind of people of the Celtic diaspora and Cherokee people. Um, So I'm Wolf Clan. My partner is also of Cherokee descent and is Bird Clan. Um, So from an early age, I was really interested in indigenous issues and really wanted to do something in my future career around that. Um, for a while, I considered going into law, but having taken one law class kind of um, disabused me of that idea <laughs> forever.
0: Yeah.
2: Uh, so, so I started um, taking other classes, found anthropology, um, and actually ended up in an African studies class. But the professor was using anthropology as a way to basically do good social justice um, activism in the communities that he was involved with, and I kind of realized if I could do the same thing, but with indigenous communities, um, that would basically be what I had kind of wanted to do for my whole life.
0: Yeah. Um, I think just one more question about your, your personal um, background. Did you grow up knowing that um, you had um, Cherokee ancestry or was that something you found out later or as some people do? Is that something you kind of knew about um, as you were growing up? And was it Kind of part of your um identity as a as a young person and then into kind of adulthood?
2: So it's something that I always knew growing up. Yep. Um, It was a big part of our family culture. At the same time, we lived in some very rural areas, and there often weren't a lot of indigenous community members to connect with. Although we um did make a point to go to local powwows. We actually returned to Cherokee, North Carolina every year or other year um, to kind of reconnect, and so my family could make sure that I was getting a little bit of that cultural background. Uh, My mom, who is not Indigenous at all, was actually one of the biggest kind of supporters of making sure that I had some kind of connection, Um, but it's interesting because looking at me, a lot of people did not necessarily see a Native American person. Looking at my dad, it's a little bit clearer to them, although typically if it's not pointed out that he's of Native ancestry, people would guess probably Latinx Mm -hmm. if they, if they saw him. Um, And my mom is the palest human being that you've ever seen. So I came out very pale and (laughs) took after her in a lot of ways. Um, But yeah, looking at our family, most people would guess that there was, you know, either Latinx or Native American um, Mm -hmm. heritage there, just looking at my father, but not necessarily if they just saw me. Um, So I was also interested in that growing up. Like I knew I had indigenous ancestry and yet I would go to school and Teachers didn't necessarily look at me and see that, mm-hmm. and we would hear these lessons about, you know, how the Cherokee all died on the Trail of Tears, and I'm thinking, well, they definitely didn't. Right. I know. I know for sure they didn't. Yeah. yeah.
0: Well, thanks for sharing um, that with us. Um, I was definitely kind of interested in what your your personal involvement um, with the topic was. Um, the The Eye Shape program is that something that is. Um, that takes place across the country, or is that just happens here in Massachusetts? Or is it kind of a national um, program brought together um, and put on by groups like the Belchertown Justice Collaborative? Or, or, so this is yeah,
2: it's entirely the brainchild of the Belchertown Justice Collaborative, oh. and I would actually love for it to be um, more of a national project. I think it's something that other towns could easily take on, uh, maybe even adapt to their own local Indigenous communities, you know, feature artists from their communities, feature books written by community members that are close to them in the way that um, we've kind of structured this. Um, but this is entirely from the minds of these incredible young people working in Belcher Town.
0: Yeah, and they they are impressive. We mm-hmm. We had them on a previous episode of our podcast back in the summer, and I was just... I was blown away by their their thoughtfulness, Mm, their their maturity, maturity and their their ability to plan something and carry it out with the like utmost highest levels of professionalism. Like they were they were just amazing. Um, And I actually, when I think about the name I shape, I kind of I, I like it from an acronym point of view, right? But I also like I like the name also in terms of what it suggests, right, is my own education can kind of begin to help maybe shape some of the, my own narratives about um, indigenous people and um, history here in North America, um, and also with my own education, maybe I can help shape kind of the larger narrative and conversation around these topics. So I like I love the name. It's like it's brilliant actually <laughs> as I sit there and think about it. Yeah. Um so the yeah, I yeah. Yeah. So okay. the, um yeah, I was please. just going
2: to say you know when I think about it I think about you know what the shape of the future is going to look like for like indigenous kids growing up um and that they won't have to go through some of the same things and some of the same erroneous assumptions that indigenous kids today or 10 years ago mm-hmm. had to go through because people are going to be better educated.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, the the campaign, the I Shape program, it's a, a multi week kind of educational endeavor. Um, and it started uh, a few weeks back around October 12th, I believe, um, 2020. And it goes through November 27th, 2020. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about kind of the different weeks of the program? And, you know, to, to whatever level of detail you're, you're comfortable with or want to go into, kind of just walk us through what the program looks like across those weeks.
2: Absolutely. So it started off with um, Columbus Day and Indigenous Peoples Day. They are the same day right now. And of course, there's this big shift to um, kind of move away from Columbus Day and towards Indigenous Peoples Day. And so we wanted to really start there um, because the fall has a lot of events that are really relevant to the way Native people are viewed by the rest of society. So Indigenous Peoples Day is the kickoff. Um, It's kind of meant to explain why there's this this big movement away from Columbus Day um, and the negative history associated with Columbus. Then we kind of moved on through different weeks where we looked at kind of a new subject every week so we looked at mascots and how it's important for indigenous people to tell their own stories and not have other people define them in another week and we have two weeks that are just dedicated entirely towards environmentalism because it's such a huge issue for indigenous communities right now but also for I think everyone in the whole world um, to really consider how to bring values like the ones many indigenous communities have of respect for nature into contemporary practice and popular culture. We need to popularize respect for nature. Um, And then we kind of ended it with a couple of weeks on Thanksgiving um, because you have Thanksgiving, the national holiday that we recognize that often has some erroneous assumptions about indigenous people woven into that narrative. And then you have um, traditional Thanksgivings which many Native nations still celebrate, um, often 13 a year, different types of Thanksgiving. And so we wanted to really parse out um, the difference between those two and also what they have in common.
0: Hmm.
1: I never even knew there was another Thanksgiving.
0: Yeah, and I have some, well, I actually <laughs> no, 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 neither <laughs> did I. I'm, and I just took a note about that because I actually have some questions about Thanksgiving a little bit l- later. Um, I wanted to ask when I was on the website looking, I, I saw that the materials are kind of stratified um, by age group, which I thought is brilliant, right? Because it doesn't limit the the program to just one group of people, mm-hmm. right? It's really aimed at um, kind of meeting learners, maybe where they're at, right? You know, thinking, I'm just thinking, I'm working my way right now through Howard Zinn's um, People's History of America, right? And some of the stuff in that, probably you don't want to put in front of a five-year-old. <laughs> like, So I, like, I really valued that the program is thought out in that way, that there really is almost something for everybody in the community, regardless of their age. So I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, the thought that went behind that and the kind of... Um, maybe approach that might be taken for different age groups.
2: Absolutely. Um, So there's a Quina Wampanoag woman, um, Linda Coombs, who talks about what she calls a spiraling theory of education. And a lot of times parents who know a little bit about Native American history might think, you know, this is too sad, too violent, too brutal to even begin to talk about it with my five-year-old. Um, And that's an understandable fear. You definitely don't want to sit your five-year-old down to this documentary that really details the graphic violence um, that befell the Taino people when Columbus landed. Um, You really don't want to introduce them to that level of detail. But it also means you don't have to lie to them and say, he was great and he got along with the people there and it was so friendly. Um, You can build slowly at an age-appropriate level um, so that you can start with exercises like telling children, you know, Columbus took people from his homes. That was probably very sad for them. Um, So they don't feel lied to because often when kids get to the college age or even high school, they'll look back and say, well, you told me all of these things about Columbus or about Thanksgiving Day. Now I'm learning almost the complete opposite. Um, So there's no need to do that, to kind of teach kids and then unteach them. We can build up. And hopefully with this project, parents feel comfortable enough to sit their kids down to some of these materials without, you know, having to assume that something terrible is going to pop out in the middle of this five minute video that they're sitting them down to, Mm. um, that's going to scar this, this poor kid for life. Um, so we've, we've thoroughly looked through all of these resources. And if there was anything even questionable, even, you know, spooky stories that involve ghosts, we put that in parentheses saying, Oh, Hey, you know, for the really little kids, this might be a little spooky, you know, there's ghosts or there's a werewolf in this story, so be careful. Mm-hmm. Um, so it should hopefully make everyone feel really comfortable um, with this learning.
0: Yeah, and so I think since we've just recently passed it, um, I'm thinking about Columbus Day and, um, you know, the reframing it as Indigenous Peoples Day. I like to th- actually think of it as... As reclaiming, <laughs> reclaiming it um, in, in my mind. Um, but could you talk a little bit about why that's so important that we um, take a holiday like Columbus Day, take a figure um, like Columbus, um, and try to um, think about it differently and not just from a, a white Eurocentric point of view?
2: Absolutely. So when I was a kid growing up and seeing the rest of the nation celebrate Columbus Day, it really drove home for me that my ancestors were not important because they were hurt by this man who everyone was celebrating. And when we really look at the history of Columbus, we see that it's not just indigenous people who he hurt. Um, His men targeted young girls for sexual trafficking. Um, So there was, you know, children being attacked, women in particular being attacked, indigenous people being attacked. He also was kind of the mind behind the transatlantic slave trade. Um, So you have that negative history associated with him. He was extremely anti-Semitic, extremely anti-Muslim. So there's a lot of groups of people that he kind of virulently attacked during his lifetime. And celebrating a man like that kind of tells you that those people and the attacks on those people are not important, not enough to get upset about to not have a holiday for this person. Um, So that all sounds very sad. But what I will say is that the fact that there's even discussion about changing it is something that I never, ever thought would happen in my lifetime Mm. growing up. I just thought Native Americans are too small a group for anyone to care about how we feel about this holiday or really anything else. Um, And I'm so proud to see that changing, that people actually are starting to care.
0: Yeah. Is it, I struggle with this, like, is it as simple as kind of what I see as the false narrative of Columbus's heroism and his bold discovery? Is it as simple as it's just that, you know, white people wrote these history books and that is the story they wanted to tell? Because when I, when, like, as I'm working my way through Howard Zinn's people's history of America, like, it's clear to me there's so much documentation... That he was an awful person? Yeah, available, like, first-hand documentation about what Columbus really did, you know, and... um, that there could... there could be or there should have been more objective kind of reporting of of that. Um, So, I guess, like... (sighs) I guess if, do you have any insight into how these misrepresentations of of history get made and how, you know, how, how the real story just gets shoved into the closet and stuck there until, you know, somebody, like maybe somebody comes along and publishes a book that, like Howard Zinn's, that kind of turns the world on its head a little bit.
2: Absolutely. I think the original... You know, Columbus's hero myth is very much a European perspective and a European perspective from a completely different era. So, if you're a European person in the 1500s, it's great that Columbus landed in this place because now you have servants um, and slaves, you have all the resources exploited from this place, um, and that's a very particular class and time period and geographical perspective. How that gets passed down, I think, is largely in school systems and popular culture, where you have a lot of people watching these little cartoons about how heroic he was. It's in the school books, and it just gets repeated kind of ad infinitum. And a lot of people, even though the evidence is clearly out there, we've got letters from Columbus. We've got letters from friends like um, Michelle DeCuneo, who writes a very graphic account of um, what he did to one of the women that Columbus gifted him. People don't know about these. They're... They're out there, but you have to search for them. Right. And it's not really made readily available to you within the school system at any level. Right. Um, so there's still many teachers who don't know about this and many who don't know that even Native Americans are still alive and around in the yeah. United States.
0: Are there um, are there enduring kind of um, firsthand accounts from Indigenous people and um, other Native Americans about what Columbus did, because I'm like thinking to myself, here I am giving credit to Howard Zinn for telling this this story, you know. But I'm sure, you know, Indigenous people have been telling this story way before Howard Zinn did, you know, about what Columbus really did. So, like, I'm I'm curious, um, I'm curious if there are um, oral traditions, written histories about Columbus and what what he did here in the Americas?
2: There are absolutely still some oral traditions that have been passed down um, through the Taino and Carib peoples. And there are kind of generational stories about what Columbus did in the last effects, although I will say they were really disrupted by Columbus's own actions Mm -hmm. um, because that system relies on elders kind of passing these stories down to children. And of course, many people died and that whole system of transmission was completely disrupted by Columbus's arrival. Um, There are also some interesting secondhand accounts from indigenous people that were written down by Europeans. So um, one man in particular, Ptolemy de las Casas, um, wrote down a lot of firsthand accounts of um, just the Spanish in general and what they were doing as conquistadors as they came over um, and supposedly were there to help these indigenous people convert to Catholicism and reorient their societies. Um, but in fact, we're taking advantage of them the vast majority of the time. So de las Casas wrote up this history and it included some accounts um, from indigenous people as he ended up ultimately allying with them.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so I and I and I and I think about um, enduring tales that may be myths, and we're coming up on Thanksgiving, and we were just talking about that a few minutes ago. Um, and and you mentioned that there are, I think, um, traditional indigenous observances of Thanksgiving um, all across, I think, North America. Um, Could you talk a little bit about about that?
2: Mm -hmm. So many um, tribal nations still have Thanksgivings and sometimes they're even monthly or associated with moon cycles. So there could be 13 in one year. Mm -hmm. Right. So if you um, go down to Mohegan in Connecticut, they will have a strawberry Thanksgiving in the summer. Um, There's kind of a winter Thanksgiving that's celebrated locally called Nakomo and the student group at UMass actually generally celebrates nakomo mm-hmm. kind of right in the middle of exams every year. Um, so it varies from place to place and how many of them varies from group to group, but generally the, the act of giving thanks is a fairly shared feature across a lot of indigenous groups. And this um, Thanksgiving that we know of as the first Thanksgiving um, may have had some ties to that general practice, but fundamentally does not have the same religious or spiritual elements mm-hmm. that I think um, were there when indigenous people were celebrating it not for everyone present at least
0: now when we th- when we think about the traditional Thanksgiving um, is is there a more kind of historically accurate or culturally sensitive way to be to, to think about it from a um, um, indigenous people's perspective?
2: Well, this is a personal view on it, and you know, other indigenous people may disagree, of course, but I think emphasizing uh, the land and what the land has given. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that we all kind of celebrate Thanksgiving with a sense of thankfulness, which is nice, right? We're thankful for what we have for our family, Um, and that's certainly part of traditional ones as well, but I think we've all become a little disconnected from where the food comes from. We have Mm -hmm. this bounty of food on our Thanksgiving, our kind of popular culture Thanksgiving, and we don't think about who grew the food, the land that the food came from, how the food was shipped to us, um, as we don't think about those things on a daily basis. But I think for indigenous people, a focus on the landscape and the ecology that gives you that food and really taking care of that is Mm -hmm. pretty central to every Thanksgiving celebration.
0: Yeah.
1: That's interesting. Just because, you know, like here in the Pioneer Valley, where where we're living right now, there's such an emphasis on buy local and, um, you know, there's a lot of farm shares around and you can buy a lot of local produce and meats and dairy. Mm-hmm. You can pretty much get almost everything. Yeah. Um, nowadays local, um, being locally produced and I don't know what I'm trying to say here, except for well, <laughs> that concept of being connected to the land, you know, was sort of, had a more of a resurgence in 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 the last couple you know last couple of decades. I want to say,
0: yeah. I mean, I, I think that's certainly one way to think about the land, right, and mm-hmm. the ecology um, a little more deeply. Mm-hmm. One one thing that came to my mind, and maybe it's a little too simplistic, is maybe you know just go for a walk right. on Thanksgiving Day, like get out you know get out there, um, take a walk through the landscape like not
1: just play football or watch a football game yeah
0: i mean (laughs) i I don't know do you um virginia do you have any suggestions about how people maybe can be more mindful about that connection to the land and um in relation to thanksgiving and what it provided the, the people at that time
2: Absolutely. I love the idea of taking a walk through the landscape and and being mindful, not just talking on the walk, but really taking note of the land around you. Mm -hmm. I think uh, the more we can learn about the plants that are around us, um, and I'm guilty of this as well. I can walk through my front yard and not recognize some of the plants there. I don't know what they are, what they do, if they would be safe to eat, do they have medicinal properties. I'm working on learning it, um, but there's so many plants. And if you take a walk and you really start to look at them, you know, there's a good chance most of us will not know most of the plants that we see or what they do. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, maybe picking up on learning a little bit of that and then noticing the animals around as well. Yeah. A lot of indigenous um, prayers you'll hear acknowledge the ones that crawl, the ones that fly, the ones that swim, the two-legged and the four-legged. So it's acknowledging the fact that we share this planet with other creatures who are as meaningful as we are in yeah. many ways. Um, So I think taking note of the animals around as well.
0: Yeah. Um, And, you know, just as a a matter, I'm just, I will, I probably already have revealed my opinion on this, but, you know, I'm one who fully supports kind of reframing um, some of these holidays um, to be more historically and anthropologically accurate. Um, And one of the things, you know, I've, gotten right is pushed back from people that you know i'm trying to rewrite history or um you know how do we how do we counter those claims that by trying to um
1: write the wrongs in the textbooks
0: yeah or even just like accurately represent um indigenous people um in in reframing some of these holidays like Columbus day and thinking about Thanksgiving a little more deeply? um, How do we push back against these claims that we're trying to rewrite history?
2: I think we have to do it with evidence. Yeah. (laughs) I I might be a little um, naively hopeful here, but I think when you have this preponderance of evidence and you can say, no, actually the, the creation of Columbus day is itself a rewriting of history. You know, here's, the real historical documents we have, I think that's the most powerful argument we have. Other than that, it's just, you know, arguing facts against ideals. Mm -hmm. And at that point it becomes not really a a debate or an argument anymore. You have facts and the other person has this idea of history that they are going to hold on to no matter what. But I also think we can acknowledge the place that Columbus Day had for Italian Americans, mm-hmm. that at the time it was a way for them to feel proud when they were a group that was persecuted in the United States. And we can say, well, it's it's nice that for them, they had that, here's what it did to indigenous people. Um, and at this point, indigenous people really probably need to be rid of Columbus Day more than Italian Americans need it to validate their presence here, which I think has been validated um, through yeah. the last century. Um, certainly not against italian americans having pride in their history in this country either Um, so i think we can acknowledge what it does for some people in terms of giving them pride in their ancestry while saying you know at this point it might be doing more damage than good on the whole and it really is inaccurate it's not an accurate representation of columbus that we have out there in popular culture and shouldn't we strive for accuracy
0: yeah i mean i certainly think so and Mm -hmm. you know i think there's I think there's mm. danger in creating false myths about people, right? Especially historical figures. Um, and I mean, we're all human and we all have flaws, right? And I mean, you know, I think what Columbus did transcends flaws, right? But what I'm saying is um, I think it's, it's important to really try to see people in in their time, in their place, and look at look at their behavior, um, in terms of the, as Virginia is saying, in terms of the documented evidence and, um, try to reckon with that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um,
1: Sorry.
0: <laughs> what are you thinking? I'm
1: just, you know, I just, um,
0: seem like you're grabbing onto something there.
1: You know, wrapping my head around this, um, society that we live in that people just really don't want to give up on these ideas that they have you know ingrained in them or you know believe in or even when faced with evidence they dismiss it's been a very difficult challenging year in that regard (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, having this conversation in the midst of all of that is just, you know, it's just mm-hmm. it's just hard and it's tiring. And I can imagine for indigenous people that it's a lifelong feeling um and I just the empathy and the sympathizing and the uh just it's overwhelming. It's just frankly just very overwhelming. Yeah.
0: Well, so thinking about history and yeah. present day um A question I have for you, Virginia, is um, if you could talk to about why it's so important that we connect the history of indigenous cultures to the present day life of indigenous people in our communities. Um, You know, not just here, but, you know, across North America.
2: Absolutely. I think if you look at the history of what indigenous people have been through, both personally as individuals and as a whole group in the United States. And there's a lot of variation between indigenous cultures, of course, but there is this shared experience of being labeled Native American, the shared experience of what the government has, you know, demanded of us at different times and put upon us at different times, what popular culture has represented all of us as. Um, I think it completely tells you about some of the issues that are going on today, um, some of the land issues, some of the ways that things get misrepresented and mass media. So if we look at something like You know, the Mashpee Wampanoag trying to reclaim some of their lands in the 1970s and the way that people became afraid that the Mashpee were actually trying to take the land that their houses were on. You know, these families with private property, they weren't at all trying to do that. You know, they were just trying to take back land that had been illegally taken from them and seized from them against Massachusetts own state laws. And say, okay, whatever hasn't been sold to private families, we would like to have back, and we're going to make it a reserve.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, so
2: they were doing something ecologically sound, preserving this very rare you know, ecology out on the Cape. Uh, we're not trying to take people's homes, and yet it became this terrible fear of them that they were going to come and evict families from their houses and toss them out onto the lawn. Um, so the way we're portrayed in the past is these unreasonable, savage people. Um, determines how we're portrayed now, even when very reasonable things are asked for, like, please don't put a pipeline under a very major water supply, right, that we actually do have the rights to, you know, I'm thinking, of course, about um, Standing Rock from a few years ago, a very reasonable, very sound argument um, that gets reframed as these wild, out-of-control activists, Native Americans, Mm -hmm. right? So, There's all kinds of historical issues for why the land rights get trampled on and why when Native Americans do ask for those rights to be respected, um, it gets completely framed incorrectly, inaccurately, and kind of hysterically sometimes in mass media. So I think we have to correct some of the assumptions about us and some of the stereotypes about us to even be recognized and another aspect of that is that if people look at you and you don't fit their idea of what a Native American is supposed to look like, then mm-hmm. why would they ever give you a voice in politics? Right. Because you don't exist to them. Mm.
0: Yeah. And I'm just kind of sitting with some of the examples you brought up of um, contemporary issues that um, Native Americans are dealing with. Um, You know, and 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 I think that some people, um, you know, non-indigenous members of our of our um, country might not even be aware that a lot of these issues are still going on, right? Um, And also, I'm just like, in stomping, Jen. You know, you you mentioned current events. I'm thinking about COVID nineteen and the disproportionate impact that that disease had on certain um, indigenous populations. And um, so there's like, for me, like there, there's the the issue around awareness that, um, that indigenous people um, in the United States still are dealing with very serious legal and social issues. um, And, that's why we need a program like I-Shape um, you know, to encourage activism and indigenous rights and sovereignty. And um, So I'm just wondering if you can talk a little bit more about that kind of activism piece around awareness and encouraging people to get involved and, and help out.
2: Yeah, I think in the past, it's been difficult for indigenous people to find a lot of allies because a lot of people just really were not exposed to anything about Native American history or cultures. And I do see that starting to shift a bit with the upcoming generations. I'm hearing fewer students who get to classes in college who say, oh, I've never had a lesson on Native Americans. Or, you know, my teacher told me they were all dead and gone. Um, That's becoming rarer. And it used to be quite common. So I do see a lot of hope in that. I'm hearing more students who actually do know of some indigenous communities near them, or they grew up and knew of one of their friends who were indigenous, which probably also means that young indigenous kids are being more confident to come mm-hmm. out and say, no, I'm part of this nation. This is you know, part of who I am. And it means that there may be even more validated by teachers and schools when they say that. So my hope is that when we do something like this and people actually get involved, they start learning more Um, that in the future, those become our allies. So when they hear about something that's going on three towns over, you know, a very reasonable request from an indigenous group, there saying, you know, we, this is our land and we actually don't want this three acres to be clear cut. We want to preserve it. There's wildlife here. Um, Maybe they get behind that. You know, maybe they actually come out to an event or they write to a Senator um, instead of necessarily believing something that they hear in the news, maybe they look into it a little deeper. Maybe this helps them remember to do the research on indigenous people and what they're really asking for.
0: Is your, um, what's your opinion on kind of where congressional leadership is on caring about indigenous people's issues and getting involved to, to help out there?
2: Well, I will say, I don't think it's ever been awesome.
0: <laughs> yeah,
2: <laughs> There's never a time period I could point to where I was like, this was really when uh, Congress really cared about Indigenous people a lot. I think it's, it's always an uphill battle, um, because in a lot of Indigenous communities, there's not a ton of money. That's not every community. You know, but a lot of communities, because of very real historical issues, um, have not been allowed to engage in business, have not been encouraged to seek higher education, have been actively discouraged from things like that. Um, and I think that that's what talks in a lot of political circles. Yeah. Um, but I'm hoping that we get some more people who are at least reasonably informed about who indigenous people are. I do think tribal rights are a mystery, To most people who are in politics, I don't think that most um, people in Congress could describe to me where a tribal nation's laws fit in among federal and state law. I would be very surprised if five could do it.
0: Yeah, is that too broad-ranging of a topic to to get into here? I'm really curious. I, I think people probably are hearing you say that and people listening to this don't even know where tribal rights fit in, in the context of federal and state law. So I'm wondering if you could just talk um, as briefly or as long as you want to uh, about that. Because I I, I think people may -hmm. may truly have no idea.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And if listeners don't know, that's forgivable because they're not in Congress. Yeah,
0: (laughs) (laughs) Although I'm hoping we do have some congressional um listeners and if we do shame on you
2: shame shame and listen and i'll i'll tell you a little bit about it um so when a tribal nation um puts land in reserve that's the creation of a reservation then that land um, becomes a federal reserve so it is beholden to federal law not state law it's basically like having a state within a state It's almost equal to the state, except if anything, it's a little bit more powerful than the state, at least in theory. States, of course, hate this because it means that items can be sold on that reservation without a state sales tax. Mm -hmm. It also allows things like gaming. So most people think that um, gaming is something that indigenous people have as some kind of ethnic right. Um, It's not that at all. To have gaming, you have to have land in federal trust status which means that you can have gaming because, of course, there's no federal law against gaming. That's how places like Nevada has it. The purpose behind putting land into federal trust for indigenous people, um, there were several reasons that the U.S. government decided to do this. On the one hand, they thought that the states were taking advantage of indigenous people too much and that they were um, kind of using methods to cheat them out of their land, which was true. On the other hand, it had to be put in federal trust, the government felt, because indigenous people could not be trusted to manage their own land. They felt that they weren't used to a capitalist system and that they would have to be gradually introduced to it. Um, Throughout various periods in history, the US government has tried to undo and redo this policy. Um, There was a time where they broke up all of these federally managed chunks of reservation land. Um, They gave individual parcels This was to discourage native Americans from actually being a tribal nation from having land and community, right? Having community fields um, that was almost seen as communistic. So they wanted to encourage this nuclear family capitalist design and they did it in an extremely racialized way. So they would actually visit with different native Americans and look at them and try to determine how racially mixed they were. And if you were as they saw it mixed with white then you got more land. If you were what they thought was 100% Native American, you got the medium amount of land. And if you were mixed with African heritage, you got the least amount of land. And they did this on site so much so that you could have three siblings who got different land partials based on their racial designation. Same parents.
0: Ugh, why did I, I ask?
2: Different skin
1: tones.
0: Why did yeah. I ask? I'm, I should have known. We need to know. I know. I, but <laughs> like I'm just. People
1: need to know these. No, I know. Things. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Um, I mean like I think about sorry
0: no don't apologize you know like we're
1: like I'm so naive and I can like say that out loud but like you know like we used to travel around the country every year my parents would take us on like a minivan adventure and we've been to different parts of the country so you know the most representation I've ever seen of Native Americans is in the southwest because there's so much of it down there but like I think about the northeast and I don't think, you know, you think of like Mohegan and like, you know, you don't really like, where are these people? They've been driven so far underground. Like you don't even know like where they are. And I feel so naive, you know, like I remember when we took the kids down to Mohegan, well, we took. Um, our son down. No, we yeah. took both of them down there to go see like Cirque du Soleil or something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we were trying to explain to them like, we're not in America right now. Like, we're on like Native American land. Like, we were trying to explain the difference. We probably did a terrible job, like, listening to you talk about it. I'm <laughs> like, we did a yeah. terrible, terrible job explaining this to them.
0: Well, trying to apply what I think I just heard. Yeah. Um, and help me out here, Virginia. I'm sure I'm going to, I may say this wrong. But so, um, Native American nation states are still part of the United States. They're just not part of the state they reside in.
2: Interesting question. So, up until the 1800s, they were considered the same as foreign nations. So, that's the treaty era where a native group would make a treaty with the U.S. government just as Italy or France would. And it was actually in relation to my tribal group that this changed. Um, So the Cherokee were trying to fight the Indian Removal Act, which eventually led to the Trail of Tears, and they tried to bring this case um, as indigenous people to the Supreme Court. But at the time, it was ruled that they could not bring this case to the Supreme Court because they were not uh, citizens. No Native Americans were citizens for a very long time. And it was also ruled they could not bring it directly to Congress because they were not really a foreign nation. Um, The judge at the time made up a new term and he said they are a domestic dependent sovereign nation. Hmm. Um, And that's a term that had never been used before in law. And he completely invented it um, and threw their case out and said the Supreme court could not hear it later. They actually had a um, white missionary, Samuel Worcester, who was a seventh generation member of the same family that established Worcester mass. Mm -hmm. He was a missionary and, um, To really prove that this was not about civilizing the Cherokee, as they originally said, Uh, the state of Georgia threatened to arrest all missionaries working within the Cherokee territories. And he was arrested on purpose, served many months in a very horrible Georgia prison. Um, And then when he got out, he took the case as a white man to the Supreme Court, arguing basically the same point as the Cherokee, that the state of Georgia does not have any say over Cherokee lands, which the Supreme Court agreed with. They won the case through Samuel Worcester um, and then they were removed anyway
1: hmm. in spite of that. And now I'm lying Go because ahead. the town I grew up in was Manalapan because it was the, it was like, which was a native American, because the Lenny Lenape lived in the region that I lived mm-hmm. that I grew up in, in New Jersey.
0: And it sounds like, but it sounds.
1: And I knew that on and yeah. and our school mascot was the Braves.
0: No, oh, jeez. Like, I'm just
1: like, I don't know. God.
0: And that kind of, and thank you for that explanation. Um, so messed up. No, I, I feel like it clarified some of my misperceptions um, around. I know, but
1: I just like have so many like.
0: The legal structure. Um, yeah. So I want to think about the I-shape um, program. And some of the the, the resources um, in there um, to help educate people, um, a lot, if not all of them, are from um, indigenous people, or um, certainly um, from the i. I it, it, they're most of them are from indigenous people, right? Their resources that books, videos. Music or that are or, or, or in, that were developed by Indigenous people. Am I right about that?
2: Yes, absolutely. We yeah. intentionally made sure all the books and all the podcasts are by Indigenous people, and then most of the videos are as well, or they heavily feature Indigenous people. So there might be um, something from, say, BuzzFeed, but it's where they interview thirty Native American people on a subject. Um, yeah. So it's primarily featuring Indigenous voices.
0: And so how do non, and this may seem like an obvious question, um, but how do non-Indigenous people in our communities benefit from um, engaging with these resources that are developed um, by um, Indigenous people?
2: Well, I think it's going to give a very different perspective on who Indigenous people are, especially if you've been seeing indigenous people and in things that are produced by non-Indigenous people. Um, So you're going to get, first of all, a lot more of a specific view. So a lot of these um, resources are actually from the Northeast. So they might talk about not just Native Americans, but specifically Mohawk people, you know, specifically Aquinnah Wampanoag people, specifically Nipmunk people. Um, So that in itself, I think is really different. We talk about Native Americans as a group a lot, but every group is unique. Mm actually. And so a lot of these books and videos will talk about what it means not only to be Native American, but also to have this very specific tribal and even clan designation, because there are clans within almost each indigenous group as well.
0: Yeah. And I think that's an interesting point, right? When I think when people think about Native Americans, right, um, they um, think about kind of a homogeneous culture, right, or homogeneous type of people. Um, one of the things that I learned, and this should I mean, this shouldn't be a surprise to me, right? But I'm I'm not that bright. But one of the things I learned from one of our guests, um, Jason Montgomery, um, who has Mexican ancestry, he was talking to us a little bit about um, um Chicano uh, Mexican Chicano. Uh, the di- yeah the, the diversity of indigenous um cultural populations across Mexico you know California like California yeah, like, yeah I'm yeah, ta- I'm thinking specifically about Mexico though okay. about how there are hundreds and hundreds of very distinct unique um like indigenous cultures across Mexico that are you know as 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 different from each other as planets are different from each other. Like he was, he was telling us a little bit about that. And I think people may not realize that, um, here in, in our part of North America, um, you know, North of Mexico up to Canada, um, that there's probably a similar diversity of indigenous cultures, you know, um, I don't know. Is my perception of that accurate?
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's really interesting. The more you live in a place, the more you really start to see these unique differences, even in things as simple as kind of aesthetic design, you know, the type of beadwork that's done or particular motifs that occur over and over again in paintings and in, you know, work with like birch bark. Um, So I think that, you know, people won't have to come out of this knowing every detail of every group in their area, but I think it would be interesting for people just to see, Hey, I'm surrounded by all these cool, unique cultural groups, I could actually visit them, you know, maybe once COVID's over. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, at some point, I might be able to go to an event, I might be able to see some of these things, you might even be able to meet some of the people who are in these videos or writing these books, they're fixtures in the community, you know, most of these authors, and the people in the videos are living people, you can go to their restaurants, you can meet them at a museum, they're going to be at powwows, they might be dancing in the circle. It's actually very accessible.
0: I think some people might, um, I don't know, be afraid to or feel like they wouldn't be welcome like at those types of events or places. I'm thinking, um, you know, about a powwow. Um, is it? Is it, are, are those types of events, do they tend to be open for people from an educational perspective, like to go and attend and learn Can you talk a little bit about that? Like if somebody does see something like advertised in the paper or online, do people read papers anymore? Um, (laughs) Like, you know, should they feel welcome to attend something like that?
2: They should absolutely feel welcome to attend. And I think a lot of indigenous people hope that they're going to get non indigenous people there so they can actually share some knowledge with them. So they can actually start to build those friendships and allyships Um, If you go to a powwow, you'll often hear the MC, who is the person who does all the announcing, um, he or she, or they might explain what's going on specifically with an eye towards people who might not know. So you'll see, you know, girls come up in these dresses that have jingles attached to them. And the MC, instead of just saying, all right, jingle dress dancers line up, they might give a little background on what jingle dress is, what the dance stands for, the fact that it's the type of prayer. It's actually a form of prayer and healing. Um, And so they'll give a little background and then they'll have people come out and dance. And there's usually dances where everyone is allowed to come in and they'll kind of tell you what to do. Um, So even if you know nothing, even if you're a terrible dancer, you can join the circle with all of the people who are there doing these, you know, kind of hard to learn dances. Right. The indigenous dancers of the day. Um, But they'll say everyone come into the circle. Everyone's welcome. And you get to be part of these really cool dances. Some of them actually form kind of um, spirals and then they kind of unwind the spiral. It's really neat. They have dances for kids and they're fun. And the hope is that people will come out. Um, I heard one indigenous person once say, if it's a private event, don't worry about it. You won't ever hear about it. If you've heard about it, that means it's public and you're welcome to come.
0: (laughs) Okay. You might like that stomping, Jen, the dancing. You like dancing. We should go to one. A powwow. (sighs) Sorry. I don't like dancing.
1: I can't dance.
0: I get very uncomfortable. But then when I start dancing, I feel okay. It's like that initial, like, starting to dance. It's really difficult for me. All right. But once I get over that, All right. I'm, I, I'm okay. Um. So, um, I'm trying to think about resources, um, and t- you know, books. Um, is there anything that, like, stands out in your mind, Um as must read or must watch in terms of um education um about indigenous peoples or cultures like do you have a like go-to book or documentary or film that you recommend to people
2: gosh there are there are so many, and I've been kind of pouring them into this project as well. So every recommendation I have is somewhere um, in one of these weeks. I do like an Indigenous People's History of the United States, and that is on there as well as the youth version that was printed. Um, I think that one's great. One film that I i don't know if we've put it on um, yet. It might be in a later week of I-Shape Massachusetts, but I do love the film Real Engine. Um, it's spelled R-E-E-L, so film real. And it gets into the stereotypes of Native Americans and how they were formed by Hollywood. Mm. Um, and it kind of picks them apart, but in a humorous way, you know, so they'll, they'll have comedians who are Indigenous and filmmakers who are Indigenous. And then they also show an updated version of kind of what's going on in Indigenous created media today, which is um, really interesting and fun and cool. And yeah, those are those are two that I always go to. I've uh, read and watched them both many times.
0: Yeah, this just popped into my head. Um, we went to the Native American History Museum in Washington D.C. a few years back, um, and they have this uh, multiple room, mm. like exhibit hall it's of. Stereotypes not, yeah. of um, Native Americans, and I think in pop culture, in popu- and advertising, yeah, and in advertising and popular culture. Have you seen that? Have you been down there?
2: Yes, yes, I have. It was several years ago, but I have seen that.
0: Yeah, I was, I was hor- like, I was horrified by it. <laughs> like, just I, <laughs> like, I'm. It, it was. I don't know. It was so overwhelming to me, and there's something about the construction of the exhibit, like having it all there Mm -hmm. kind of like in your face and you realize um, how pervasive, you know, the stereotypes are um, in popular culture and in advertising that, um, I don't know, it just, that just stopped me in my tracks. Mm -hmm. You know, because the way they design it, it's like,
1: Floor to ceiling it's floor
0: to ceiling and it's high, and it, it's got to be like hundred foot walls like and it's yeah. as far as the eye can see I don't know if that's like an intentional thing to overwhelming make, to <laughs> overwhelm you with it mm-hmm. um, but um yeah and, and and for me maybe that's popping into my mind because I'm like juxtaposing against the importance of people being exposed to um media and resources that, you know depict indigenous people in a in an accurate in an authentic light as opposed yeah, to in an accurate and culturally sensitive way. Right. Um yeah. Um so and I will tell people I'm linking to those resources in our podcast show notes so you can um, go find those there if you're if you're listening to this. Um so um One thing I also wanted to ask about um, is one goal of the program is to help support indigenous business owners, activists, educators, and artists. Um, How can people find all those aforementioned individuals? Like, if I want to support indigenous business owners and artists like how, how do I go about doing that
2: it's a great question um, we're putting together the links to everyone who we're purchasing from and who's donating um, but I think most of the indigenous artists there's just straight purchasing um, their pieces to give out in the giveaway at the end um, but if you look at those week to weeks I think in the kind of over 19 you know adult section um, for grown-ups there'll be links To places where you can shop. So um, local artists as well as kind of these national web pages that feature Indigenous artists from all over the United States, some from the Northeast, but some from other places as well. Um, So we're putting those links in. And of course, no pressure on anyone to actually go buy anything if you're unable to. But it's really cool just to even look around and do some online window shopping just to see the really cool artwork that's being produced by indigenous people um, in every type of aesthetic you can imagine.
0: Yeah. And people, the holidays are coming up. So you can go look on there for maybe some um, interesting non Amazon union <laughs> busting gifts. So um, go check those out. Um, mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, so um Virginia. So we we mentioned, I think, earlier in the podcast that um, you're an anthropologist, um, you have a, um, a master's degree in this, you're working on a PhD. Um, your master's thesis was, I'm going to read this, uh, stereotypes of contemporary Native American Indian characters in recent popular media. Um, can you tell us a little bit more ab- about that um i don't know if it's right to call that a study or an analysis but about that thesis and your interest in that topic in particular
2: absolutely that title really rolls off the tongue doesn't it
0: (laughs) i am going to read it by the way um and i'm and i'm going to put the link to your um to the the scholar works where people can find that and read it um also in the podcast notes so they can look at that
2: oh great thank you and read it sure Yeah, that was a study I did um, because I was wondering about issues that young Indigenous people had. And at the time, a lot of Indigenous people were kind of leaning towards this, you know, not being recognized as Indigenous and the fact that it bothered them. At the same time, I kept hearing from a lot of academic works and just people on the street, this idea that you don't see Native Americans in contemporary set shows, right? You only see them in these historicals, these Westerns. Um, And yet every time a native American character would come on a show like bones or criminal minds, I would get like three texts from various family members and friends. Did you see the native American on bones? Um, So I'm like, they're out there. I know because I keep getting these texts every time CBS airs an episode with a native American person on it, everyone hits me up to say, did you see it? Um, So I started to think, you know, well, what are people getting, you know, just your average person who sits down to TV This was kind of before the age of streaming really took over. So there were still people watching local channels um, and national channels. And I thought, you know, what episodes are they seeing? What are they getting from these really popular shows? What impression of indigenous people? And so I started kind of just collecting from 1990 on um, 2012 was when it was published. I collected a little bit further than that. Actually, I've got the spreadsheet still running. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I just obsessively watched every episode of every TV show that I could find every movie and read every popular book. And that includes twilight, (laughs) every word I've read every word of twilight. And
0: can I, can I ask, did did you watch star Trek Voyager?
2: I did. Although technically that's not contemporary. It's the future. Oh, right. (laughs)
0: Shame on me.
2: So I didn't put it in, but I, I wanted to,
0: (laughs) sorry, I forgot. That is the future. Yes. Um, Okay. Props
2: to them for putting an indigenous character in the future. I mean, it wasn't perfect, but it was ahead of its time.
0: <laughs> yeah, sorry, I interrupted you. So you were um, you did watch uh, you did read Twilight. Um, every word I did. of that, yep.
2: I did for my thesis.
0: Yeah, um,
2: <laughs> but then I made this gigantic spreadsheet where I just started putting in every kind of aspect, every personality quirk, every geographical thing, everything associated with indigenous people and not associated with them that I could possibly think of that appeared in any episode of any show and then started cross-checking to see where they overlapped. And I did a bunch of different variations of this and I looked at it chronologically and that didn't really produce much um, apart from the fact that the Washington state area was real popular in the early 1990s um, because that's where twin peaks was set and it's where they Mm -hmm. filmed Northern exposure. Um, And then it got popular again around twilight. So that wasn't really much. Um, That was just more about production and where production was being held. And then I looked north to south. It's a real historical, you know, in the United States, north and south is usually kind of juxtaposed against each other. That didn't produce anything. But then east to west produced huge trends. Um, So certain columns just lit up only for the east and not at all for the west and vice versa. So that's when I thought something really weird is happening with the Mm -hmm. portrayals. Um, And there has been this historic divide between the Indigenous people east of the Mississippi who were thought to be kind of wiped out through King Philip's War and through the Indian Removal Act, um, and these, you know, trails of tears west, and then western kind of more plains indigenous people um, who are considered more authentic, you know, who have been considered to have lasted longer. Um, all of this is, you know not the greatest, most accurate history, because of course there's still tons of indigenous people east of the Mississippi, um, but in every portrayal of them, they were often portrayed as racially mixed. They were given accents that very clearly belonged to other ethnic groups like Italian-American accents, French accents, um, these kind of jabs at their identity that maybe they're not fully indigenous, maybe they're not really Native American. In many episodes, they had indigenous characters just come right out and say, oh, I'm faking it. And just over and over again, you see this. Um, So it all kind of coincides with this popular history that there are no real Native Americans out here anymore. The false idea that Native Americans get all kinds of benefits that other people don't get. And so there's good reason to fake it. Um, And a lot of the Eastern set shows they've lost their spirituality, they're shysters, they're crooked. Um, If they try to do a prayer, it fails. Whereas in the West, they're portrayed as much more authentic but also hostile to outsiders um they're always you know moody they're always they don't want to talk to the white main characters they try to kick them off the reservation they're covered in face paint there's a lot of shape-shifting a lot of associations with these mystical happenings Mm -hmm. um they can see ghosts i mean just anything you can think of that's mystical and magical it's happening out there in the west in these tv shows Um, So it was an interesting divide to see that in pop culture and to see it as such a huge trend
0: set. Did your study um, venture into trying to explain that difference? Like why there was a difference in interpretation between the East and the West when it came to those representations?
2: I did. So I looked really at history books to see what they were saying about the East and West. Mm -hmm. And it focused really on this extermination idea for the East, and that has been played out through a lot of different things. Um, I mentioned the Mashpee Wampanoag's court case um, from the 1970s on land. They lost that case because uh, one of the reasons listed by the um, all non-Indigenous jury is that they were too racially mixed. So there was still this idea in the 1970s that at some point, if you lost enough Indian blood, quote unquote, um, you were not really considered Native American, almost the exact opposite yeah. of the one uh, doctoral for being considered african-american
0: huh that's mm. interesting i don't know what i think about it it's just interesting <laughs> um now your phd your um, doctoral studies does that is are you continuing that work you started with your master's thesis or are you going in a, a different direction what's your area of focus there
2: a slightly different direction Um, after studying those stereotypical kind of um, things for so long. And I did do a a really large study too, of, of the historical stereotypes. Uh, At that point, I I kind of wanted to move on and look at what indigenous people are producing about themselves and saying about themselves. So now I'm looking at um, Native American produced digital media, including online websites, um, communities, and things like that, just to see, what differences exist? And there are some, as you can imagine, pretty huge ones that exist between what, you know, non-Indigenous people and the mainstream portray as Indigenous versus what Indigenous people themselves are mm-hmm. saying about themselves.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I think you talked about this a little bit up, up at the front of the podcast. Um, I think I probably know the answer, but I'll ask the question anyways. Um, why did you decide you wanted to be an anthropologist or do, do this work in anthropology is, is it, is it tied to your identity as a indigenous person? Or do you, do you also have a kind of an external interest in anthropology?
2: So I think it is tied um, to my identity. And at first um, I just saw anthropology as the vehicle that would allow me to do work with all kinds of indigenous communities and to do some kind of good work in undoing the stereotypes That I had grown up with and that other indigenous people I met in college had also grown up with. Um, I did not at the time when I first got into it, I took one anthropology class. The professor was incredible. That was Dr. Scott Lacey at Emory. Um, And he was so inspirational with what he was doing. He saw anthropology as service. Um, And he basically said, you're getting your entire career from studying and living amongst a group of people, generally being a pain in the neck to them because you don't understand what's happening around you most Mm -hmm. of the time when you start. Um, So you should do something back for them. This this should Mm -hmm. be something that actually gives back. You should be in service. I really love that. So I I jumped into it. And as I learned more about anthropology, you know, it has like many academic disciplines, a pretty sordid history with indigenous communities. Um, But there have also always been indigenous anthropologists as well you know, Mm -hmm. people who are coming into the field to correct those mistakes and to kind of give a different perspective. Um, so I hope that I'm following in their footsteps.
0: Has anything surprised you about becoming an anthropologist? Did anything, anything you weren't expecting or kind of curious about that?
2: Yeah, I, I don't know. Um, the work, alongside biological anthropologists because they were the group that has probably the most conflict over history with indigenous communities. Um, So I know even in the 1990s, there were biological anthropologists who were very unwilling to let go of collections of Native American Skeletons and remains and sacred objects. Um, And they were being told by the 1990 Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act that you need to give these things back. Mm -hmm. If you can identify where they were stolen from, in most of the cases stolen, um, then they should return back to those people. And some were very hesitant to do this. And so when I got into anthropology, I expected a lot of biological anthropologists to um, not be sensitive to Native American issues. And this is a very pleasant surprise that I think the work of NAGPRA, um, being a law that kind of really intends to set right those wrongs of anthropology in the past, it has become part of the culture of many biological anthropologists. I've had so much respect from them and I have so much respect for them. The ones I've worked with have gone out of their way, bent over backwards to make sure that they are adhering to indigenous protocol. Um, And that might not be the experience for everyone or for every indigenous person or every anthropologist. But for me, um, I've actually gotten along very well with some of the bio ant people. Um, Hmm. And they've really tried to correct some of the wrongs of anthropology's history.
0: Yeah. And I would imagine that, I mean, they, I was going to say, it's never easy to change the rules, right? And that must have been very difficult um, for them, I'm thinking. But also, like, in my mind, like, who are you to think you get to hold on to somebody's body? (laughs) Like, you know, um, and, and ignore any particular cultural sensitivities around the possession of those remains. But on the other hand, they also, I think, like they might, and I'm speaking way out of my realm of expertise, but my my thought would be they might play a very important role in telling the anthropological story of indigenous people. Um, is there, like how do you work out now, like if, if um, remains are um, found or discovered and like a biological anthropologist wants to... don't know if i'm using the right words like sample that like how like how do you how do you work that out like procedurally like let the biological anthropologists get the information that they they need to contribute to the field of study but also be respectful like are there are there now widely agreed upon protocols for that or is it like curious about that
2: there's no widely agreed-upon protocols, and the, I think the situation varies, you know, from discovery to discovery. Mm-hmm. Um, in many cases, most of the time the remains we're talking about were from the past, you know, they've been in museums for a long time. When there's a new discovery, that can be very tricky mm-hmm. um, because it's not always super clear from the objects around the person, what group they may have belonged to, right? Right. Um, Some indigenous people have spiritual ways of identifying their own ancestors. And while that may seem, you know, too unscientific to some people, I will say that in many cases they've been correct um, and they've been verified later by DNA testing. But in many cases, you know, tribal groups don't want DNA testing because that's an invasive procedure with these very old remains. Um, And they take very seriously not Mm -hmm. disturbing the remains. Yeah. Um, There are many spiritual beliefs around it. Um, But in some groups, it's not as taboo a thing to do. There have been tribes that have allowed um, archaeologists and biological anthropologists to look at remains that were already unearthed through construction and things like that. Um, As long as they are minimalistic with their invasive procedures, um, kind of help tell the story of those individuals and then promise to reinter them. Mm -hmm. Um, So that does happen from time to time, those kind of arrangements. And in that case, I think, you know, having those good relationships with anthropologists that are trustworthy, who will actually, you know, adhere to what the tribe is wanting is really important. And in other cases when they don't want it done, um, they should be left alone.
0: Yeah. Um, Thinking um, kind of shifting back to popular media, um, are there representations of um, Native American characters in popular media that stand out to you? as being particularly negative um, or damaging?
2: There's many that have yeah. um, struck me over yeah. the years. I think I was really hurt when I saw the episode of, um, it was a Bugs Bunny cartoon where he was shooting at Native Americans and he was marking, he was doing hash marks for the count of how many he had shot. Oh my god! And then he shot one of them and said, Oh, that one was just a half breed and he erased half of the hash mark he had just drawn. And oh that my. one, God, that hurt my feelings. I like Bugs Bunny as a kid. <laughs> yeah, Looney Tunes.
0: <sighs> no. I'm thinking we have two kids now, um, or 13 and 10. And back like seven years ago, their grandparents bought them the Looney Tunes box set. Like, like I still remember. Like, some of those things, are, some of those cartoons are so bad they had to put a they put a disclaimer, disclaimer up at the, the front beginning. of the disc, like explaining that these. These are representations, you know, of a time and a place and don't, you know, mm-hmm. blah, 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 represent our values now. Um, thinking about that, I'm kind of curious, like, do you think that's the right way to handle something like that? Like, put, uh, for, is it Warner Brothers? Like, put a mm-hmm. big disclaimer on the front saying, look, this is objectively culturally insensitive. It's objectively wrong. We're going to tell you that it's wrong. Um, and that these things represent, you know, values from a time and a place that aren't now. Um, Is that the right approach? Um, Or, but, you know, because they're making money off of that still, right? Like, what is the right approach? I'm curious if you have an opinion on that.
2: Yeah, I I think, first of all, it's a lot better than when they used to just air them. So I'm glad that there's progress on that front. I know Disney is doing the same thing with a lot of their... Um, shows. And I do want some of these to be made available as teaching tools yeah. mm-hmm. um, because I do want to show, hey, you know, I think if we erase it all, people say, well, why are Native Americans so upset with how they've been portrayed? And I think you have to point back to things like that for people to go, ooh, that is bad. Yeah. Um, yeah. And sometimes it's helpful to show people that, you know, older older people, not little kids. Um, but I think when kids get older, you can show them that and they know, oh, that's that's bad. Um, At the same time, I do think that the economic aspect is problematic. I would like for the sales of things like that to actually, a portion of it to go back to the communities who were hurt by it in the first place. I think that would be an ideal and very lovely thing for these companies to do who have been profiting off of those stereotypes for so
0: long. Yeah, and let me guess, they're not donating in a significant way. That's my guess.
2: Mooney Tunes, don't, do you mean Warner Brothers. Yeah,
0: don't sue us, Warner Brothers. If you are, if, <laughs> if you are, let us know about it, please. Yeah. Um, so, kind of thinking on the other side of that, um, are there any um, uh, representations in popular media that stand out to you as having got it right or mostly right, or are things that you know you've watched and you, and you say as an Indigenous person, I feel good about that?
2: Yeah, a lot of um, indigenous created stuff I really quite like. Um, Molly of Denali is a PBS show. It's actually out of Canada, um, but it's about an Inuit girl. And that one is really, really well done. It, you know, She's a very normal girl. She's not portrayed as super exotic, but she's also portrayed as having her indigenous identity be a part of her everyday life and something that she does. Um, and almost every person I talk to who's Inuit or even who's from a different indigenous group says, wow, I feel really represented having her on television. Um, so I've known grown people who watched that show and cried because they were so happy that, you know, other little girls would have that. Um, so that one is definitely in our resources is something for kids to watch. And there's some games for them to play online, um, particularly during this pandemic time when there's not so much to do outside of the home. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think that one was was a really good one. I also am a huge fan of Taika Waititi, and he's not Native American. He's um, Maori mm-hmm, from mm-hmm. New Zealand, and he's become quite a big name in mm-hmm. Hollywood after directing um, Jojo Rabbit and Thor Ragnarok. He's put all kinds of little indigenous nods into Thor Ragnarok mm-hmm. um, for those who can
0: spot them. Oh. What's that movie, Hunt for the Wilder People? Yeah, that's
1: such a good movie. Yes.
0: I love that movie. I love Taika Waititi. He's awesome.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah, and I love that he, um, you know, a lot of indigenous-created stuff for a period um, focused so much on the historical trauma that was really important to cover. It was important that people know about it. Um, Rhymes for Young Ghouls is a great movie that does that, kind of a spooky, um, creepy, almost Halloween-ish vibe to it, but it looks at the residential boarding schools, some of this really traumatic history. And while these are really great movies and you should watch them, at a certain point as an indigenous person, I cannot watch another sad movie about native people where everything's terrible and wrong. Mm -hmm. And it's not a great reflection on what day-to-day life is for many indigenous people. You know, there's ups and downs for sure with every community and every individual um, but I kind of like the joy that's infused through Taika Waititi's movies and the humor because humor is huge in so many indigenous communities and I just like to see it on film.
0: How um how does humor play out in indigenous communities? Um, it, not that you can paint all indigenous communities with one brush and say, but I'm just thinking, I'm curious if there are examples that you can think of. Are there... um um indigenous stand-up comedians are there you know um i don't know help me out stop i Jen. don't know where you're going with this yeah question. i don't know i'm just curious if you can think <laughs> of um just examples of of how humor plays like an important role
2: yeah i i can't give specific examples i don't think without getting people in um bad trouble with elders
0: okay yeah uh, don't do that please <laughs>
2: <laughs> but even some of our elders are pretty yeah. funny um just remembering back to, uh, one elder in particular, and she would just kind of rate the young men dancing in the circle. Mm-hmm. And she would just look at me and be like, now he's, he's good looking. If I was 40 years younger, I'd have my eyes on him. Now the guy beside him, I don't like what he's got going on. I don't like the thing he's doing with his hair <laughs> just brazenly and, and full volume, by the way, everyone sure. could hear. Um, so she was just objectifying these poor young men, uh, But she wasn't being serious, you know, and and they all knew her and and took it very well. Um, But you'll hear people even around the drum while the drum is sacred. um, The guys will be cutting up. You know, the women will be cutting up and sometimes have to be told when they were called to drum. Mm -hmm. You know, someone will have to say, hey, you're on, you're on, you're on. (laughs) And then they're oh, 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 and jump into the song. Um, People have to elbow each other sometimes during a song. To keep on track. Uh, generally, it's just kind of a good time. I don't remember too many trips to powwows in cars that didn't involve a whole lot of people packed into a car and people laughing and telling jokes the whole time.
0: Yeah, and and I do I do like your focus on appreciating um, those elements like of indigenous culture because I think you're right. I'm thinking of the representations that stand out in my mind. And they're often like grim, like reservation type scenarios and not just like, like you said, like they don't typically include like those joyous elements that are part of everybody's day-to-day lives. Bringing this back to the, the I shape program um, um, as a scholar, um, as an indigenous person and a member of you know this um western massachusetts community we live in um what has being involved in um developing this program and supporting it and getting it out there to the world meant to you
2: it's been a great opportunity for one to try and get some of this information out and to try and get it out to people at a young age because often you know, by the time people get to college, it's, it's a lot of work sometimes to undo some of the things they've learned that weren't accurate um, or just to make them aware that Indigenous people are around. Um, and by that time, they also, like you said, they might feel a little intimidated coming to an event like a powwow or they say, you know, I don't know anything or I, I don't know anything about Native Americans, which, first of all, you can come even if you don't know anything. You know, you'll learn there. You'll meet people and people will be friendly and invite you in. Um, but hopefully people would feel more comfortable if they had some exposure when they were really little. So they grow up kind of knowing at least in the back of their head, you know, there's indigenous people all around. They might not look like some of the cartoons I've seen, right? They might look just like me Mm -hmm. and they have these concerns and they have these political rights. Yeah. And so hopefully that builds a better future. And for me, it's also been so positive to see that young people who aren't indigenous actually do care about our communities, actually do want to be allies and kind of build towards this better future where we're all in this together.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. So mm-hmm. people, um, go check out the program, mm-hmm. right? I don't think it's too late to sign up for it, right? I mean, when people hear this, it will be uh, the week of November 18th. And, you know, it will. can people still as they're listening to this, can they still go on and like sign up for it and look at some of the materials?
2: They can. And they can even look at previous weeks and do those activities. Okay. So every activity, whether it's reading a book or even watching a five minute video comes with little points that you earn and you can then cash those points in for prizes. And so if you're you know, joining us in the last week, but you really want to go back and read about Columbus day and indigenous people's day and the issues around that, um, go back and do those activities and, you know, earn your points and maybe even get some really cool indigenous art at the end of it.
0: Yeah. And I I just want to mention that again. Um, there's going to be over $500 worth of prizes, um, that is going to be given out that were purchased um, from indigenous artists, creators and business owners. So, and you can go on to the, um, the I, um, I shape website and take a look at the, I think there's an Instagram of some of the, um, artwork and prizes and they're beautiful. Um, Mm -hmm. so you can take a look at those. Um, yeah. And what I'd say is I I was looking at through some of the, the questions and some of the materials and, um, you know, some of them really got me thinking, mm-hmm. right? and I felt really were challenging me. like I think there was one question about think about you know think about a representation you know think about a representation of an indigenous person you've seen in the media like like I had to sit down and really think about that mm-hmm. like and I, and like I couldn't think of anything like current, and I think that might that that probably speaks to something. Right. Mm -hmm. I don't know what exactly, probably the degree of representation. But then the thing the thing that popped into my mind was dances with wolves, like that movie from nineteen ninety one. Like why is that the thing that stuck in my head? And like I know I've seen you love Kevin Costner. I do, Kevin. Kevin yeah. I do love Kevin. Costner. I do love. We have to have a we have to have a man crush episode at a different time. But um, I do love him. But and I think he's a great actor. By the way, he's not only handsome; he is a great actor. But uh, I
1: didn't say he was handsome.
0: I said it. Leave me alone. So uh, no, my point. My point is, um, it's like that. That is the that is the popular culture representation of indigenous people that like came into my head when I th- sat down to think about it, and part of me was like, shame on you, like to me because I know there's so many probably other other ones, but anyways, I don't want to try to unpack that here about like why that is <laughs> or but anyways, like I um, a there's the a yep the i-shape program there's a lot in there to really help um engage you and challenge you and really get reframe you reframe your education really get you to think about um indigenous people mm-hmm. in our community and beyond yeah. so um i definitely want to recommend people check that out <clears throat> and as virginia said it doesn't matter that the the program started a few weeks back. You can right. get you can get in there and engage with the materials. Will it
1: be available after the date too? Like for people to jump in? Like maybe they don't win the prizes, but they can still work their way through the curriculum.
2: Yeah, I believe it is going to stay up, and I think the goal of the Belchertown Justice Collaborative is to do this again in the future mm-hmm. um, and to keep this as broad as possible. So that it, if you're not in Belchertown, that's fine. You can do it, you know, in any other place around mm-hmm. the. The northeast you know and it will mm-hmm. still be really relevant you could do it really anywhere in the country and it would still be relevant mm-hmm. to learn okay. about some of these historical things yeah
0: all right so we're just going to end with two questions we like to ask people they're kind of fun questions so we want to end on a end on a, a
1: fun note
0: a fun note stomping jen this um, has all been fun it has been absolutely um you know but these are the, the heavy these are under a section <laughs> called fun <laughs> on my notes <laughs> so, uh, the fun
1: section yeah um,
0: all right what's your question Sati? okay um virginia what do you like to do for fun when you're not working so when you're not uh, uh, but i'm getting a sense that anthropology is might be fun for you but so set aside <laughs> when you're not doing anthropology and you're not doing your day job what do you like to do to, to entertain yourself unwind Self-care. whatever it is
2: yeah God, this i can go on forever here um I am an arts and crafts fanatic. So I do beadwork and I paint and I crochet and I do resin work and I repaint 1960s creepy uh, blow mold, which are those things that you put in your yard that light up from the inside that look vaguely haunted. Oh, really? Yeah, I repaint those.
1: (laughs) That's
0: Blow amazing. Bulb? What's a bloom? She what? just told us. No,
1: I know she did, but I don't I can't in my mind picture what that looks like.
2: Have you seen those plastic things that have like lights on the inside of them and it'll be like a Santa, but he looks really creepy?
0: Oh. Yeah, like those translucent kind of like they're not the not the inflatable um, fabric ones, but the plastic like translucenty um I'm a child of the '70s and early '80s, so I know exactly what you're talking about. Yes. I'm six You've been years not to old. Buy
1: them your whole life, then you're not six years older than me.
0: How much older am Four. I? Four. Oh, sorry. What um, are you
1: talking about? But
0: I know what you're talking about, and I think that's awesome. Although, I'm not sure you're helping the world by restoring those things because they are creepy.
1: That sounds like they are sh- creepy. she does her.
0: Okay, so that. What else do you do? <laughs>
1: <laughs> think of creepy,
2: I do. I love. Not true crime, because that's too scary to me if something actually happened, but a murder mystery, mm. I love. And I've collected so many that my husband says it looks like I'm planning something. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, no. It's looking bad. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's cool.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. Um, last question. Um, and this, this is the best question, I think. Um, uh, and you can, so you can interpret this any way you want. Okay. Um, You have full license to do that. Um, What have you seen that you cannot explain? Play some creepy music.
1: Don't play the creepy
2: music. Yes, play the creepy music. I did, and this is going to sound a little cuckoo, Okay. um, but as a kid, I lived in the middle of the woods and I did see an aircraft over me moving so slowly that I followed it through the woods and could remain directly underneath it. And it was V shaped and had five lights in a V. And I'm guessing it was some kind of government flight because we were right in an area where they would test planes. We used to have them break the sound barrier over us and it would shake the entire house. Um, I nearly died chewing on a gobstopper once because of that. Oh my God. (laughs) Really traumatic episode in my life. So I'm guessing that this was some kind of test that they were running but it was really late at night it was you know like 11 or midnight Um, and i walked underneath this thing for quite some time
0: stomping jen do you know what we have just heard What virginia i have talked on this podcast many times about what i believe are to be um, extraterrestrial aircraft that are visiting our planet our own government has confirmed this obsessed Um, with this early in the summer um the department of defense released two videos recorded by f-15 fighter jets are you familiar with this at all yes i saw those i think i have found another guest to appear on my upcoming ufo episode stomping jen (laughs) i love that you shared with that with us thank you virginia oh my god i appreciate it oh
1: and so um i looked up these blow modes They all seem to be like holiday related Hmm. is that true they're all like holiday related they are if you see a halloween one let me know because those are rare yeah there were some jack-o'-lantern ones that i found
0: oh uh, online i mean are i just they really quickly just to see oh. what
1: the, to give myself some context okay. i just looked it up real quick <laughs> those are
2: great right. mostly
1: um Christmas
2: related like winter related yeah yeah i like a creepy santa myself yeah
1: cool
0: all right well virginia i cannot thank you enough um, for coming on and talking to us about the Belchertown Justice Collaboratives i Shape Program, mm-hmm. about your um, anthropological studies, um, I learned a lot.
1: I learned a lot.
0: Um, that was really informative for me. Yeah. I hope other I'm sorry people I,
1: like spewed out like oh. all. <laughs>
0: Uh, listen, times are tough, Stomping Jen. I know. You're fine. <laughs>
1: yeah. You're
0: fine. Um, thank you. So what we want to say to our listeners is go check this stuff out, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, you know, I looked I looked at it for about an hour and I was intrigued. I'm yeah. going to go back to it. I'm going to look at it. Um, to our listeners, we also want to say thank you for listening.
1: Yes. Thank right?
0: you. You are, you are the lifeblood of the podcast.
1: hmm
0: Right. Stomping Jen. That's true. So we appreciate you. Yeah,
1: we love you. We love
0: you. Next week will be our Thanksgiving episode. Uh
1: Uh-huh.
0: We'll be doing that. Yeah. Right?
1: Everyone should wear a mask.
0: Right? Um,
1: (laughs) Be safe. Yeah. (laughs) They've already voted.
0: That's right. They've already voted. So still wear your mask, though. Yes. Right?
1: Continue to wear your mask. Okay.
0: Um, Okay. Virginia, any final words as we go out of the podcast
2: just want to say thank you for having me on and i want to thank the belchertown justice collaborative for putting this event together for shaping this and for bringing so many interesting things for people to explore so i really encourage people to get on there at any time of year and look at these thank you
0: well said um thanks everybody um again we love you thanks for listening and we will see you later right right. yep Okay, bye now. Bye
1: now.
0: All peoples will come to live together in a peace guaranteed.